Good morning, everyone. According to my watch, it's 9.30, so we should get started since we want to be punctual. Um, I want to welcome you for coming out to this session this morning. And I want to give you an overview of uh, what we will be doing since um, at GYC in Baltimore, they, I had three hours, and that now I have six hours. So, and unfortunately, my schedule is so busy, I didn't get back to the organizers in terms of the topics. So it just says parts one through six. But if you want to have a sense of what I'll be covering, um, let me um, talk a little bit about that now. Um, there's, I've built just a tiny bit of repetition into it, not much. Um, they're really different topics. So the first two hours, um, we'll cover the topic um, hidden bias. Why do so many well-meaning Christians discriminate against others every day? And you may not think that's true of you, but if you hang on, I will be sharing with you insights from the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, and from science that suggest this is exactly very true. All of us do this if we belong to the human family. Um, but we are unaware of it and may not know. So we will, we will talk a little bit about that. It certainly has implications about race, but this is really not about race. It's about how we process information and, and what God is trying to do through each of us through the power of the Holy Spirit. For the next sessions three and four, my topic is Laodicea 101, Race, Separate Conferences, and the Gospel. That is largely a historical presentation, although we will certainly reflect on what does it mean spiritually for us today, um, that we look at uh, a history of both wonderful successes and, and wonderful um, points of, of leadership um, within the history of Adventism and the question of race, but also very dark, tragic moments of failure. Um, I, I speak not as one who has achieved, as one who has feet of clay, and I, I go through the history um, not to criticize, but uh, for us to learn from our history. We have nothing to fear for the future, unless as we forget the way the Lord has led us in our part in the past and uh, uh, his teaching of prior history. history. But I think the history is really very important for moving forward. There are many people who make proposals of how to move forward, um, and clearly what they're saying reflects an absolutely misunderstanding of the history. And I think just understanding the history really is crucial for us to think of, of what we can do in terms of moving forward. And then the final um, two um, uh, sessions, and that is uh, tomorrow morning, um, is divided before why we have failed to move the world, will really be largely a study of John 17 and the spirit of prophecy of what it says about unity and how central unity is um, in our mission. How can we really achieve the unity for which Jesus um, prayed? What are the barriers to unity within our church? And we certainly will talk about race, but it's, this is much more up, up than race. Um, there are multiple other dimensions in which um, we don't have the unity um, that, that we should have. So that's, that's the big picture of the topic. Let me say a word too um, about um, this um, session. Um, along, points along the way, I may start preaching, but this is not really a preaching a session. It's a seminar 
context. Um, and I expect engagement, I expect questions, I expect you to be free um, to raise your hand. My students tell me um, that sometimes I speak fast. Um, they tell me that sometimes I speak with an accent. Um, I have never met anyone who didn't speak with an accent. It's true. No, we all have accents. Now, what they mean to say is I have a different accent. You, the, let someone drop you in the middle of some a place and they will instantly tell that you have an accent, you have an American accent. So I think what you mean to say is I have a different accent, not an accent, we all have accents. Um, so um, my, my point is if, if I am speaking too fast or I, you didn't understand something, please stop me um, if there's a question if there's an issue, please raise your hand and so that we can, can make sure that we are together um, on this topic. Um, what else do I want to say um, before I begin? Because I recognize that um, not all of you will attend all of the sessions, um, I will hand out, and my second daughter is here with me, so I'll have, have put her to work um, to help <laughs> handing out these. This is, and maybe I should tell you a little of the history of this article. It's a piece I wrote for the Adventist Review that was published in 1997. And, and maybe it's a very good introduction. I wasn't planning to do this, but actually it's useful for me to talk about this article. It's entitled The Right Thing to Do. It, it, when I wrote it, it was entitled Weight in the Balances, a Biblical Critique of Racial Division in the Adventist Church. But the editors picked a, a nicer topic. It was um, published as an opinion piece. Um, I sent it to the review and requested that they consider it to be published as an opinion piece. Not because I think anything in here is unbiblical or in, out of harmony with the spirit of prophecy, but because I am sufficiently politically aware um, that I understand how um, controversial this is within the church. Um, and I'd written several pieces for the review before, um, some on health, my, my major area of work is on health, and I'd written several pieces on abuse, um, uh, and domestic violence within the church I'd written for the review on, and why pastors uh, take advantage of women I'd written a piece in the review on. Um, but most of the papers I'd written for the review were things the review had asked me to write, um, as opposed to I thought of this and decided to write about it. And I want to tell you why I wrote about it, because it's good context for this whole six hours of sessions I will do here. This was back in the mid-1990s. Uh, president Clinton was the President of the United States then. He had announced a special initiative on race in the United States. And the White House Office of Science and Technology had pulled together about 25 to 30 leading scholars doing work on race in America, and I was part of that group. And so here I sat with a group of scientists, researchers from universities across the U.S. who studied race and were trying to grapple with the mandate that the president had given to, we, we wrote a piece for the National Academy of Sciences on race and trying to grapple with how could the country move forward on the area of race. And so I, I would go from these meetings during the week where scholars, most of them atheists and agnostic, 
would throw their hands up that this problem of race is intractable in American society, and I'd go to church on Sabbath and listen to messages about the power of Jesus that was able to help us overcome everything, and yet on the problem of race, we as a church seem to act as if the cross never happened, as if this problem was too difficult for God to solve. And then I read a couple pieces in the review that really got me going. There was a, an article by then an associate editor of the review, and I'm not mentioning any names, um, that was entitled um, the, the Major Successes in the Church in the Last 50 Years, and one of them was the success of regional conferences. And there was a review article on that point. You can go back in the mid-1990s and find it. And there was a book published around the time, The History of the Black Work, that had a chapter entitled Separate Conferences, a, a ro The Road to S Progress, The Road to Progress. And I, I was really troubled by them. Not, I mean, if we have a problem, it's one thing. It's, it's a different stage when we have backslidden so far from where God is calling us to be that we accept our backsliding as normative and as success. You know, it's, it's as if sometimes when new believers come in, they have to backslide in order to be in good and regular standing. Um, so I was troubled, and I knew the editor of the review. He had taught me in the seminary, and, and I knew he was a God-fearing man, and he was, in fact, tackling the very topics I had written for the review before on domestic violence in the church and the problem of clergy abuse um, were certainly controversial issues that re the Adventist Review had not historically covered. And I felt, well, he would be willing to entertain a piece like this, but to protect the review staff, I said, I'm submitting it as an opinion piece. An opinion piece allows a review to say, we have published this to stimulate debate and discussion. We are not saying we support it. I didn't hear from the review for six months. And about six, maybe five months. For five months later, I got a letter from the editor of the review. said, Dear Brother Williams, he and the other editors have been reading this piece and have been struggling with what, if any, use to make of it. He went on to say, we believe you are correct theologically, but we disagree with your implications for church polity. In, in simple English, is you are correct, but we disagree with what your message has to say for church practice. I read that and I was actually stunned because I thought that as last-day Christians, what determines what we do is what is right, not what is politically appropriate. And so knowing the editor, myself, as a former student and having an issue, I dealt with him in the seminary. He was certainly a godly man and one who was fair. I, I, I decided to, to write him a letter to respond. I didn't think he would change his mind. That was not the purpose. But I said, I know the elder will not sleep well tonight. So I, I wrote him a piece saying that I respect his right as editor. He certainly decides what he publishes. But I was troubled by his reasoning that if it is right theologically, how could it be problematic for church polity? And in fact, isn't our church practice to be driven by our theology? And to hit below the belt, 
The editor had a book that I had read that was a commentary on the book of Matthew entitled Religion and Overalls in which he made the point that the book of Matthew shows how religion has to come from the ivory tower into the practice of everyday life. And I said, isn't that a point you made so eloquently in your book, Religion and Overalls? But I went on further to say, or is it that we have strayed so far from God's ideal that his commands look like fanaticism? Or are we afraid of the political backlash that we are unwilling to have the prophetic voice be raised within the church? And I went on to share my own experience. I come from the Caribbean originally, came into the United States in the mid-1970s during a time in which the big issue within the church then structurally was whether we needed two black unions, two black union conferences. Up to that point in the history of the Adventist church, there had never been a black person who was the president of a union conference in the North American division. And the proposal was that given at the division level, blacks were then excluded, it would be nice, in fact, it would be right to take the six regional conferences at the time, there are more now, form them into two unions. You would now have two black ministers, presidents of a union conference, and they would now be represented at the division level. That was a proposal being made. And honestly, as a seminary student back in the 70s, I supported the proposal. I thought it was not the right thing to do, but the appropriate thing to do given the options that were available. There had been multiple occasions where um, blacks had been nominated for union president and it hadn't happened because at the time, including Elder Bradford had been nominated as a union president, hadn't happened because persons said it was wrong for the image of the church at the time. So we felt, it's, if it's, this is not an option, how do you get representation? It's not ideal, it's a compromise, but it's an appropriate compromise. And then there were developments in the British Union um, at the time um, that, um, I don't know if I want to go into that history, but, but was all relevant. The point was, I actually supported even deepening the division that existed in the church along the lines of race at one point in my life. But I changed. And I change not because of some new political insight. I change as a result of looking at what Scripture has to say and what the spirit of prophecy had to say. And I feel that there is no way to, to, to deepen the divisions um, is not the right thing to do. And to, to, to compromise is to concede the frailties of human nature instead of emphasizing the life-changing possibilities of the cross. And that God is calling us in these closing moments of Earth's history to become all that he wants us to be, which means if we will become all that he wants us to be, he's going to push us outside of our comfort zone, and he is going to enable us to do what needs to be done. One of the biggest criticisms I've gotten from church leaders when I talk about this topic is, how is this going to happen? What's the solution? What are the steps you're going to take? And you know what my answer is? I have no clue, but the Holy Spirit does. I don't have to have the answers. But when God's children are committed to him and give their lives to him and ask for his wisdom and guidance, he will provide it to us. We cannot use the fear of uncharted difficulties and not knowing how to move forward as a reason not to do what God is calling us to do.
So with that background, and I threw some of that into the letter, I sent it to the, to the editor of the review. The next week I heard from him. He said, Dear Brother Williams, I read your letter. I was deeply moved. We will publish the article in February of next year. And so you have it. Um, it really covers more of the material that I will deal with in the next two sessions. But since I know all of you will not be here for the whole thing, I'm handing it out now. At least you have some sense of, of both a biblical and spirit of prophecy rationale for one of the issues that I think I will talk about in this session that is more um, controversial. Okay, but why do so many meaning, uh, well-meaning Christians discriminate against others every day? Let's turn to our topic for today. And before we begin, since I really didn't begin, this was an announcement. <laughs> before we begin, let's bow our heads in prayer because we really need God's wisdom, guidance, spirit to be with us as we talk today. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you, Lord, that you love us even now. Not just back on Calvary, but even today, in spite of our failures, weaknesses, and mistakes, your long-suffering love still loves us. We pray, Lord, as we consider your word, as we consider what you want us to become, the Holy Spirit would be with us to lead and guide, that Jesus would be uplifted, and all of us would make a new commitment to love and serve you and to live for you, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to begin with some th three slides that I'm going to show in each presentation because they're central to what I, I deal with, and I know some of you will not be at all of my talks, so there, there are three points. The first is I'm going to talk about this most in my final set of presentations, but John 17. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed. It, this is the true Lord's Prayer in the Gospels of the New Testament. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed um, before he went to Calvary. It's a prayer for his followers up to the end of time. And I am emphasizing that one of the burdens of Christ's prayer was unity. The, the, the point about the unity that I want to emphasize for us to keep in mind is that Christ is saying that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one with us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Isn't that what our lives are all about? Helping to lift up Jesus so that the world could be convicted, so that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world and we can go home to live with Jesus. And he is saying we need to be one because that is going to make a difference to convict the world. And I'm going to delve into that much more powerfully in the final session. I in them and, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. God wants us to be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Again, that the world may know that you sent me. The notion of unity being a central to uh, an effective Christian witness. And just in case you missed the clarity of John 17, the spirit of prophecy says that harmony and union existing within the church among men and women of various dis dispositions is the strongest witness 
that can be born that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. And as I will review for you some of the scientific evidence, you will find that harmony and union is not humanly possible under normal circumstances. It doesn't happen. It takes supernatural power to produce it. It's what the world is waiting for and looking for. It is our privilege to bear this witness. And that's my challenge to all of us. It is our privilege to bear that strongest witness that the world is waiting for. But in order to do this, we must place ourselves under Christ's commands. Not under the commands of our culture, not under the dictates of even church bureaucracy, but under Christ's commands. Our characters must be molded in harmony with his character. Our wills must be surrendered to his will. Then we shall work together without a thought of collision. Wouldn't it be nice if all God's children were working together, not without collision, but without even the thought of collision. That's possible, but we've got a work to do, and we'll talk about that in the final session. And what are the opportunities if we can have this love and have this unity amongst ourselves? Spirit of Prophecy, beautiful quotation, volume nine of the Testimonies, page 189. If we would humble ourselves, before God. Be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful. There would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. What a dramatic change in our evangelistic outreach. Having 100 where now there is one. But there's work for us to do under the power of the Spirit. We can't do the work ourselves. We need to humble ourselves before God. Be kind, courteous, tender-hearted, and pitiful. There would be 100 conversions where now there is one. Let me throw in another. This, these are all preamble points I want to make, and this one is really crucial. I mean, in my talk today and in the series of talks, I will be drawing on findings from uh, research. I'm a researcher. That's how I earn my living, as a researcher. So I believe in the findings of social science. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes some Christians think that you have to choose between what science says and what the Bible says. And I actually think that is a problematic viewpoint. Because who is the source of all truth in the universe? God is. Who is the greatest scientist in the universe? God is. And science, then this is the big challenge, rightly understood. Now, it doesn't mean that, that, that the persons who conduct the science have rightly understood it necessarily. But science, rightly understood, does not contradict the Word of God. In fact, it affirms the Word of God because they both come from the same source. And for those of you who are students, and, and those of you who are studying, and, and those of all of us, we need to understand that there isn't conflict. And when we see apparent conflict, we need to try to understand it. Because look at what it says. Spirit of Prophecy, Council of Teachers, page 426. Science rightly understood. Science and the written word agree. Each sheds light on the other. 
So sometimes from science, we can put it with the word and come to a richer, deeper understanding. Because God is the greatest scientist on the planet. Together, they lead us to God. Both of them lead us to God. Yes, the word is, is above, the word is, is primary, the word is a precedence, but, but we, we put the two of them together and we come to a richer understanding. So you sh it's, we shouldn't get into a false dichotomy of is it science on the Bible, and I don't have time to talk about it, but I, I do a presentation on, on, on corporal punishment, for example, and what science says about corporal punishment and what some Christians think the Bible says, and look at the spirit of prophecy and see how the two things are beautifully resolved. Spirit of Prophecy says, Ellen White says, everything that scientific research has found about the negative effects of corporal punishment, all of that is in the book Child Guidance. Don't take my word for it. Go home, read a chapter on corrective discipline. She says, when you spank a child in anger, you, 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 you do more harm than good because you're out of control. And the purpose of discipline is to teach a child self-control. But that's a different topic. Rightly understood, they, science and the Bible, are in perfect harmony perfect harmony, all truth, whether in nature or revelation, is consistent in itself in all its manifestations. And here is another beautiful quotation, the last one on this general point, Christ is the author of all truth. Every brilliant conception, every thought of wisdom, every capacity and talent of men is the gift of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is the source of all wisdom. All deep scientific insights is a reflection of the mind of God. He borrowed no ideas from humanity when Jesus was here on earth. This is from the book that I may know him, The Spirit of Prophecy, page 207. He borrowed no ideas from humanity, for he originated all. The source, the most brilliant mind in the universe is God. But when he came to earth, he found the bright gems of truth, buried up in superstition and traditions. Truths were placed in the framework of error to serve the purpose of the arch-deceiver. And what did Jesus do? He presented the truth in its primitive purity, divested of the error that Satan had accumulated to hide its heavenly beauty. And for those of you who study and those of you who are in school, that is one of your tasks, being faithful to God, is to take the truth as they lie in error, separate them from the error that surrounds them, and reset them within the framework of the gospel. That's what God is calling us to do. And they are in harmony, and there is truth to be gleaned from science and from the Bible. Okay, I need to get to my topic at some point, so let's start. Um, the topic, why am I asserting that there are so many Christians that discriminate against others every day? Scientific research, and there's been a lot of scientific research on the topic of discrimination and prejudice, and what it finds is that prejudice and discrimination is a natural human tendency. Research reveals that as soon as individuals can identify themselves as a group different from another group, they develop what researchers call in-group favoritism, which means a preference towards their group, and out-group hostility or out-group discrimination, a tendency to treat the other group differently. Um, in the early research done along these lines, researchers thought the reason for this 
was that groups wanted to maximize the benefits for their group. If you could think of a world where there's a pie being divided, groups were prejudice and groups would discriminate because they wanted their group to get a bigger piece of the pie. And then there was a body of scientific research documents. This process continues even when people realize that by discriminating against the outgroup, your group will get less. It will actually hurt your group. People still do it. So it's not just simply self-interest and maximizing the benefits for your group. It seems to be a deeply human tendency. L let me break this down. What research suggests, and there's 40 years of social psychological research on the topic, if I divided this audience here this morning into two groups, and I said to folks sitting on my left, you are the blue group, and I'll give you blue t-shirts to wear for the rest of GYC, and those on my right, you are the red group, and I give you red t-shirts to wear for the rest of GYC. Over the time of this meeting, people in the blue groups Wearing blue t-shirts will develop positive feelings towards other people wearing the blue t-shirt. And people with the red group will begin to develop positive feelings towards those wearing the red t-shirt. And if you have a chance, you will actually favor people wearing a blue t-shirt over people wearing a red t-shirt. It is a very basic human tendency where there is little at stake just randomly organizing people separately. This process of in-group favoritism seems to be triggered once you can see yourself and some others as us and see another group out there as them. Very basic, very fundamental. But Jesus, I believe, is saying to each one of us that his kingdom must be actuated by a different set of principles. Jesus is looking for a group of people who will rise above the normal, natural, human tendency and see others not the way you would naturally be inclined to, but really see others the way God sees them. You will want to look at people through heaven's eyes and not through your normal eyes. God is asking us, each one of us, to look at every man and every woman, every boy and every girl, through heaven's eyes. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is not asking us to do the impossible. He's just asking us to follow in his steps. He's just asking us to, as he has loved us, so we also ought to love one another. And if we look at Scripture, and we see how Jesus related to others, we see that power of love at work. John chapter 4 gives us a beautiful example. And I picked this one, you'll see it later in my talk, because it's a beautiful example of how Jesus dealt with someone from a group that was negatively stereotyped in his day. We're familiar with the story. I'm reading John uh, 4, 3 to 8 from the New American Standard Bible. Um, word of advice, if you don't know Hebrew and Greek, 
um, and are trying to navigate the Bible and trying to really engage in very serious Bible study and want to come close to what the Bible, closest to what the Bible says. Um, there are two Adventist theological scholars who have written a book, not published by the church, but published out this scholarly book, evaluating all the various translations. And they have concluded, this is Kubo and Specht, um, that the most correct according to the original is the New American Standard Bible. So that if you really want to use a Bible for Bible study, now I'm not saying it's the most readable Bible. So for devotional purposes, it may not be the best, but if you're really in serious Bible study and you don't have the, the background and you really want to understand what's closest, New American Standard Bible is, is the Bible. Okay. Jesus left Judea and went again into Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So let's spend a, a few moments on this text because there are some powerful lessons that we sometimes miss. We need to understand that text within its context. We need to understand who the Jews were and who the Samaritans were. The Bible is telling us in John 4 that Jesus, a Jewish male, was talking to a woman of Samaria at Jacob's well. Samaria was located between two Jewish areas, Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Jews traveling between these two areas would typically detour around Samaria, since Jews who went through Samaria were frequently attacked. Jesus is northbound, the Bible says, headed from Judea to Galilee, and he takes the shortcut right through Samaritan country. He waits alone at the well while the disciples go into a nearby village to buy food. And while Jesus is at the well, the Bible says, a woman approaches him who has not one, not two, but three red flags around her neck. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and to put it euphemistically, she's a woman of questionable morals. And Jesus, in John 4 and verse 7, says to this woman, give me a drink. Four short words that in a split second shattered the negative social stereotypes and rules that were designed to prevent that kind of behavior. Jesus was not just being nice to this woman. With these four words, give me a drink, Jesus violated five social rules that were designed to keep him from her. First of all, Jesus is violating turf rules. This was not his neighborhood. This was on the other side of the tracks. Jesus had no business being there. Jews didn't linger in Samaria. Samaritans and Jews were bitter enemies. The Samaritans had emerged 400 years later as a result of mixed marriages between the Jews and the Gentiles. So they, they were regarded then of somewhat mixed ethnic, racial background. The Jews in the time of Jesus 
regarded the Samaritans as half-breed bastards. The Samaritans were of a different, that is, inferior ethnic group. And the Samaritans worshipped God differently than the Jews. This even came up in the conversation. They had constructed their own temple on Mount Gerizim as a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. And the Samaritans had developed their own version of the Bible. To the Jews, the Samaritans were even worse than Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't know better. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as a group that knew better but wanted to do their own thing anyhow. And so first of all, here we find Jesus lingering on enemy ground. This first mistake according to the culture, according to the times in which he was. Second, this was a woman. In the time of Jesus, there were many negative social stereotypes about women. And there was a lot of systematic discrimination against women. For example, in the time of Jesus, a woman could be divorced simply for talking to a man on the street. The rabbis taught, and I quote, a man should hold no conversation with a woman in the street, not even with his wife, still less with any other woman. Just talking to a man in public could be the basis of divorce. And certainly, upright men didn't talk to women in public. A rabbi wouldn't talk to women in, uh, in public. But Jesus disregards this fact, risks his reputation, and talks to this woman. He doesn't care about who has seen him. This is a person. This is a child of God. He cares for her. Jesus talks to her. Third, this is not just another woman. This woman is going to bed with a sixth man and had come to the well looking for another one. And you'd say, how did Jesus know that? Actually, if you understand the culture and understand the time, Jesus did not need divine insight to know that this was a woman of questionable morals. In John 6.16, the Bible tells us this encounter at the well occurred about the sixth hour. The sixth hour would be high noon, would be 12 o'clock. Well, who went to the well at 12 o'clock? Which women went to the well in the middle of the day? If you go back, culture, of that time, very strong. Go back to Genesis 24, verse 11. You read the story of Eliezer going in search for a husband for his master Abraham. And it says he got to the well in the evening. And what does the Bible say, Genesis 24:11? At the time when women went to draw water. Women went to draw water in that culture in the evening, in the cool of the day. It made sense. But prostitutes went at high noon because that's when you met people who were traveling. So the very fact that this woman was there in the middle of the day said that she came to the well for more than water. Jesus didn't need a divine insight to know that. No decent 
upright woman went to the well at this hour. Only prostitutes went to draw water at high noon. So this woman came to the well looking for more than water. Everybody in town knows her number. Rabbis and holy men run from such sinful prostitutes. But John 4 tells us, my God does not run. He looks at this woman through heaven's eyes. He takes a risk. He puts his career on the line by asking her for help. And fourth, this is not just a promiscuous woman. The Bible says this was a woman of Samaria, a Samaritan. The rabbis taught, the rabbis taught that Samaritan women were perpetually unclean. Jews were forbidden to talk to Samaritans. The social rule said, look the other way, avoid her, act as if she doesn't exist. And Jesus breaks down the social barriers and talks to her. And finally, and worst of all, in his request to this woman, Jesus would deliberately defile himself. You see, according to Jewish law, a Samaritan was unclean. Samaritan women were unclean. Anything they touched would become unclean. In the time of Jesus, a whole Jewish village would be declared unclean until evening if a Samaritan woman as much as walked into the village. The village had been polluted. The entire village would be unclean if a Samaritan just walked into the village. By asking for water that this woman would have touched, Jesus would have been intentionally polluting himself. What I'm saying today is that all the stereotypes and all of the religious rules said to stay as far away as possible from this unclean woman. But here was Jesus talking to the woman at the well, doing the wrong thing to the wrong person in the wrong place. The behavior was so radical. Jesus' behavior was so unprecedented that it blew the minds of the disciples. If you read, it blew the mind of the woman first as well. You read in, in, in John 4 verse 9, what does the woman say to Jesus? How is it that you, a Jew, is asking a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? She couldn't believe it. And in John 4 verse 27, when the disciples came back, what does the Bible say? They marveled. The Bible says, they marveled that he was talking to the woman. This was unprecedented. This did not happen. Why did Jesus do this? Because Jesus was focused on his mission. Jesus was talking to the woman about water, one element of existence that all humans need. When it comes to water, when it comes to the living water, we are all on an equal basis. Jews and Samaritans, 
Males and females, flirts and straights, red, yellow, black, or white, we all need water. And Jesus had come to let everyone know that the living water had arrived and he had come to provide life for all. So I want to begin this series of presentations today by reminding us that we have Jesus who is still today on the last day of this year, the last year of this decade, Jesus is still the savior of the world. And we need to cry out this morning and ask Jesus to baptize us anew with power from on high. We need to ask Jesus with love, oh, refresh us, their Savior, draw nigh. We need to be refreshed by the love of Jesus so that we can look at every single person we encounter every day of our lives in the church, outside the church, wherever we are, through heaven's eyes. We will see them not according to our social rules of our society, not according to our socialization, not according to how we were raised, but we will see people through heaven's eyes and through the eyes that Jesus wants us to have. And so the question is, how easy is that for us to do? Is that a difficult thing for us to do, to follow the footsteps of Jesus and say that we will treat everyone just the way that Jesus treated them, that we would lay aside the baggage of our society, which puts people into different social categories, and just naturally treat everyone just the way that Jesus treated them. And I think, if I were to do a survey and ask people, most people would say, yeah, I would do that. I treat everybody the same. Most people think that they treat everybody the same. They don't treat people differently based on who they are, based on their education, based on their status, based on their gender, their race, their sexual orientation. We just treat everybody differently. And I would say to you, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. One of the things I learned, I did my, my doctoral work in social psychology. And if you were to ask me what is one of the biggest kind of generalized take-home points from the study of social psychologists of the last 50 years, is that people have no clue of what they would do. What we learned in social psychology, and lots of experiments have show this, that most people will do what the situation requires. Let me state that a different way. That if you want to predict what someone will do and what they wouldn't do, you don't look at their values, you don't look at their beliefs, you don't look at their church attendance, you don't look at how they were raised. You look at the power of the situation within which you put them. Because if you can create the right situation, most people, I would say the research suggests, 80% of the population 
will do things that, they, that go against their values, that go against their beliefs, if you can only make the situation powerful enough. But we think that we're smart enough to deal with the devil. And we don't know. This is what humans are able to do in the lab, just to set up a situation so powerful that people will go ahead and do it. And, and it, I think it goes against our common sense. I, I listen to the news all the time, and you, you read about the torture of the soldiers in Abu Ghraib, and, and, or you read about someone who committed a horrible murder, and the neighbor says, I am in shock. I can't imagine he would ever do that. No other parent, my child would never do such a terrible thing. You have no clue what any of us would do. What does the Bible say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Most of us will violate our values, our principles, if the powerful situation becomes enough. And that's why one of the things we have to do in dealing with temptation is avoid certain social situations. What it also means is that too many of us have this attitude that we can handle ourselves. We're grown-ups. We can take care of ourselves. We can make our decisions. Folks, without Jesus, we can do nothing. We are not able in our own strength. And, and I, I love uh, Ministry of Healing. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly upon the merits of the Savior. That's a powerful text. It's, it makes the same point that, that 2 Corinthians makes, that where Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. It's when we recognize our own weakness, our own failures, our own limitations, our own human frailty and inability to do God's will. And when we look to him for grace and strength, when we acknowledge our weakness, then he can empower us. Then he can give us his strength. His strength is made perfect in weakness. And, and one of the things we have to realize is our own um, level of, of weakness. Because that's where the key to our strength is. Um, trying to think of what I should do now. We've, we're going to break in a few minutes. And maybe I should begin with the topic and, and, and pose it. And then we'll see. We'll, we'll go into it in depth in the second hour. So let me just give you one example from my area of scientific research that illustrates how easy it is for people to violate their own principles, okay? So this is from a study that was published, done by a researcher by the name of Kevin Schulman. Kevin Schulman uh, is a physician, medical researcher, went to a medical convention of uh, internal medicine specialists in the United States, had 720 of them sitting at a computer, look at a patient, look at the symptoms that patient described, and asked them to make a diagnosis, and as a reward for doing that, they got some gift. I don't remember what the gift was. And what Kevin Schulman, what the physicians didn't know, is that all the patients that Schulman used were actors. They all claimed to live in the same place, to hold the same jobs, 
and they all describe their symptoms identically. In fact, these actors were trained to even have the same facial expression and body language as they describe the symptoms. So everything that the physicians saw were absolutely identical. Except that some of the patients were male and some were female. These were the patients. Some were black and some were white. But other than that, everything else was identical. And what this study found was that women and blacks were less likely to be referred for cardiac authorization, the appropriate medical procedure, given the symptoms, um, compared to men and whites, respectively. And black women were the most disadvantaged because they suffered from both the gender stereotype and the racial stereotype. This new story, when it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, was on the networks, every major network that night. It was striking. 2020 did a special on it. Nightline did a special on it. How does this happen? Congress, in its wisdom, asked the Institute of Medicine, the highest scientific medical authority in the United States, to commission a study to identify what happened at this medical convention with fake patients. Does that really happen in the United States of America when people go to receive medical care? And so the Institute of Medicine did a study. Now how the Institute of Medicine works, it doesn't actually conduct new research. It pulls together a panel of experts and they review the existing scientific literature and try to see is there enough evidence for us to draw a conclusion. I was one of the persons who served on the Institute of Medicine's panel. This panel issued a report in 2003. The report is entitled Unequal Treatment. You can find it in your medical library. Um, this is a, a press release. That's a picture compliments of the Washington Post. Um, we were on television that night when the report was released. Um, this was a press conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, it was, I was at the University of Michigan at the time. Um, next to me was Risa Loviso Murray, who is the president of the Robert Hood Johnson Foundation, and Dr. Alan Nelson, a former president of the American Medical Association. That's a picture from our press conference. What I want to say to you, though, what did this study find? The study found that across virtually all medical interventions in the United States, from the most simple medical procedures to the most complex medical procedures. Minorities receive fewer procedures and poorer quality of care than whites. These differences existed even when people had the same health insurance, when the level of education was identical, when the stage and severity of disease was identical, when the level of co-occurring illness was identical, when they were in the same medical facility. In fact, it even existed in places like the VA where you think, well, there's little differences in insurance coverage or inpatients with Medicare when insurance is identical. It even existed in those contexts. It was stunning. How on earth is it possible that we live in a country with the best trained medical professionals in the world who go to work every day to deliver high quality medical care to the patients 
and there is a body of there are over 200 published scientific papers documenting this. And not every single one of them, but I would say 80% of them find this pattern. In cardiovascular disease is the area best documented. There are nearly 100 studies in the area of cardiovascular disease when we did this review. How on earth is it possible that we can have such a disparate level of care um, when um, in, in the United States? I'll give you an example. This is um, one of the studies. It found that white Medicare patients were four times more likely than blacks to receive bypass surgery. Another one study, medical Mexican-Americans with definite a possible MI, myocardial infarction or heart attack, were received 38% fewer medications than whites. Blacks with an acute MI, that's a black with a heart attack, were less likely to get into the right hospital, but if they got there, they were less likely to receive the right procedure. And if they got there, they got the procedure the first time, they were less likely to get the appropriate follow-up care. At every stage of the disease process, there were differences in care. Give you an example of race and breast cancer. Blacks with breast cancer, less likely to have health insurance, less likely to get appropriate treatment, more likely to be treated in large public hospitals. However, even when you statistically hold those factors constant, black women with breast cancer were less likely to get the appropriate test, less likely to get the appropriate treatment, less likely to get the appropriate re rehabilitation services. And I'm saying, how on earth do you make sense of that? Persons with a TIA, a TIA is a mild stroke. Persons with a mild stroke, blacks were less likely to get non-invasive testing. If they got that, less likely to get the next cerebral angiography. If they got an angiography, they less, at every stage of the disease of treatment, they got less care. And let me end with this one. This will be the last example I'll give you. I'm posing the question. The next session will answer the question and try to think of what it means for us. Dr. Todd was an emergency room physician at UCLA Medical Center. And Dr. Todd asked a very simple question. When a patient comes into the UCLA emergency room with a long bone fracture, a long bone fracture is a broken bone in the arm or legs, is there a difference by ethnicity as to whether that patient receives pain medication or not? Okay, patient in the ER with a broken bone does the patient's race determine whether they get pain medication? And Dr. Todd went back and looked at every patient treated in UCLA emergency room for a year with a broken bone in the arm or legs, and he found that 55% of Hispanic patients did not receive pain medication compared to 26% of non-Hispanic whites. It's a statistically significant difference, big difference. But he's a good researcher. He said, we researchers worry about confounding. Could it be some other factor? And so he said he would adjust for whether the patient was male or female. He would adjust for whether they spoke Spanish or not. He would adjust for what time they showed up at the ER, how long they spent in the ER, whether they got injured on the job, trying to think of every other possible explanation that could make a difference. And when he statistically held everything constant, the single strongest predictor of whether that patient got pain medication or not was that the patient was Hispanic. Dr. Stott said, okay, could it be that there is a cultural difference in the way Latinos express their pain that the physicians are just not queuing in on? And so he did a second study, and he had patients to rate how much pain they felt they were in. And he had providers to look at the patients and rate how much pain they thought 
the patient was in. And he compared it to, and he found that physicians could equally detect the severity of pain in Hispanic patients and other patients, but they systematically prescribed less medication to Hispanic patients. Dr. Todd moved from UCLA to Emory University in Atlanta, repeated the same study at the three largest emergency rooms in Atlanta, looking at black and white patients, and found exactly the same thing. A black patient with a broken bone in the arm or legs goes to an emergency room in Atlanta, is less likely to get pain medication than a white patient. And the question is, how on earth do we make sense of these differences in treatment when we are dealing with the best trained medical force in the world who go to work each day with good intentions to do their best. I think it's 9.30. So we're gonna stop at this point. We'll resume again in 15 minutes, I think is the schedule we're on. And when we come back, we will understand what, how does science make sense of this? What does this problem have to do with the data I talked about of stereotypes? How the example of Jesus is so dramatic? And what can each one of us do in our own lives so that we never repeat that mistake. Because what I'm gonna tell you is what these physicians did in these studies, you and I do every single day to people we encounter who fall into some social status category that we don't like. This is not about race, my brothers and sisters. It's not about race. It, it's about negative stereotypes. It's about if we view some people negatively, whether that's gay people or fat people, whether that's old people or immigrant people. It's about how we process information and how we categorize people. We do exactly the same thing. When we come back, we'll talk about that and how God can help us to deal with that problem. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.